Hi, Behind the Idea listeners, and happy Friday. We're trying something new here on the show, bonus episodes. We're interviewing authors of Seeking Alpha Pro Plus top ideas about their thought processes to give you an inside look at professional caliber equity analysis. We kicked off last week with Jorge Robles and his coverage of Jim Group PLC, and it went pretty well, so we'll do our best to make this a regular thing. These will come out on Fridays to help you gear up for your weekend 10K reading, your filings, all that kind of stuff. All right, let's get it. I'm Mike Taylor. Today we're talking about Hill International, ticker symbol HIL. It's an unloved construction management company with an unglamorous business model and a history of management difficulties. Joining me is Tim Heitman of Investing 501 to give us some details about why he believes this ugly stock may deliver attractive returns for investors. Before we begin, let me remind you that Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at ideas from around the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes great investment analysis work. Behind the Idea is brought to you by Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. Pro Plus subscribers get early access to Seeking Alpha's top ideas, including this Investing 501 thesis on Hill International. They also get lots of real-time alerts and exclusives on Seeking Alpha's best research. I have no positions in any stocks we plan to discuss, and Tim is long hill. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. Okay, welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, so let's dive right in. What? Just give me the basic uh, brief recap of your thesis on hill. What's going on here? Well, at uh, Investing 501, one of the things we like to do is look for companies that are ugly and you are probably going to be sick to your stomach or certainly at least uncomfortable if you consider investing in them. Uh, And we look for ideas, though, where uh, inflection points uh, from the underlying business standpoint are happening, but they really don't show from maybe a top line or a traditional screen basis. And uh, Hill fits that thesis. So a little background on the company. Uh, Revenue has declined about 40% or more since 2015. So that doesn't look too good from the top. Uh, Yeah, that's not great. (laughs) uh, The revenues are still declining, as a matter of fact. Uh, Year over year, they're still down 14%. So again, uh, optically, as uh, the youngins like to say, it doesn't look too good. So we're going to get into the problems that got Hill to where it is today. But what attracted us to Hill was if you look at underlying numbers, for example, they they post backlog numbers and there's growth in the backlog year to date. Uh, We look at things like gross profit dollars, not necessarily gross profit margins and cost structures. If you look at things of that sort, free cash flow, uh, the company's finally getting close to an inflection point where from a, a top line Top line example, they should start to grow. For example, one of the big problems was the cost structure was totally out of control. They hadn't made money for years, but now that's definitely under control, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, Basically, you've got a business that generates 40% gross margins, 
with a cost structure that's basically flat going forward. So you can see how there's a great deal of operating leverage uh, in the business if revenue starts to grow, which we think it will. You know, so investors are rightly skeptical of the sustainability up to this point because we'll talk about all the problems they had. And, and I think that gives investors who are willing to be patient an opportunity to get involved in a company that has been historically attractive to other companies from an acquisition standpoint and is in a business that, as you mentioned, clearly people aren't interested in at this point in time, but, but we're getting close. Great. So real quick, I'd like to just t- pause and ask, you mentioned you look at gross margin dollars instead of gross margin percentages. Can you explain a little bit why you take that approach or what the advantages is? Sure. Uh, See, a company like Hill uh, has two revenue components. One's called uh, consulting fee revenue, which is um, their kind of cost plus where the gross margin is. Plus, they also have a component of revenue, which is really uh, fixed costs, uh, pass through costs that are uh, subcontractor fees that they, you know, they hire for their business and, and things of that sort. So if you look at a company that has gross profit, margin revenue business combined with a non-gross profit revenue margin business, and you're just looking at gross profit margins because there's a mixed shift between the two, you really don't get a, a good understanding of the underlying profitability of the one division that's profitable. So for example, aggregate gross profit margins margins are in the 20 to 30% range, but in the the CFR business, they've been consistently 38 to 40, 41%. So as the mix shift changes around, the gross margin percentage is much more volatile than the actual business. So that's why we like to look at gross profit dollars. Great. Yeah. Good, good answer. That's interesting and something to keep in mind. Like you said, screens can help, can mislead people in that regard. And certainly my own top line high-level look at the financial statements led me down that track. Yeah, if you look at, you know, like like Seeking Alpha does a great job with their financials and you can convert the numbers to percentages. So if you're just looking at percentages all the, all the way through the income statement but don't understand how the revenue is generated, it can be misleading, yeah. you know, a lot of times. And there's a lot of these little companies that have multiple uh, – Revenue streams where one's a small division that may be just starting and they're generating lots of losses and they're hiding, you know, a, high, a very profitable nugget in there uh, yeah. as well. Great note for me. I often boast, Tim, that I'm a gross margins guy, ah. that I love gross margins. And uh, you're giving me a good cautionary note on that approach. Awesome. So I appreciate that. So one thing I think we should stop for a minute to kind of clear up is Hill's business model from kind of the real world standpoint. If you go to Hill International's website and you go to their services section, they list like 12 different things that are all similar to each other. And the general impression you get from looking at the site is they provide sort of consulting and project management services for construction Projects. What do you think investors need to know about their business activities and their customer relationships? Uh, again, a very good question because, again, you have to kind of understand a little bit of what's going on here. So Hill is like the eighth largest company in that space, but 
that's a bunch of gobbledygook. I like to call it basically a construction risk management company. That, I think that simplifies the description okay. and people can get a, get a hold on that. So basically what happens is companies that are, or, or governments, about 63% of their business is governments. So for example, uh, recently Hill was part of a, a joint venture that was hired by the New York Department of Design and Construction. Uh, they're going to build a, a multi-billion dollar well, they're going to build four new facilities that are going to cost multi, multi-billion dollars for correctional facilities in Manhattan and Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx. So Hill is hired by the New York Department of Design and Construction to sit between them and whomever they hire as the general contractor for the construction business and that sort of thing. Plus, they're involved in the planning. So, so Hill's basic function is to be the policeman, so to speak, for the company to make sure that the budgets that are being presented by the construction company make sense. They're trying to avoid cost overruns. So they're really kind of an advocate for the entity that has hired the company to construct whatever it is. Uh, They've done about 10,000 projects total since the the company was founded 20 some years ago uh, with about $500 billion in in, uh, aggregate value. So They've been involved in a lot of little projects, but also a lot of very big projects. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, and I'm I'm heartened to hear. I saw on social media some issues with some of the Brooklyn jails, especially the heat was out there. So hopefully they can get some get some of that well, issue this, fixed or be a part of that process. This will replace Rikers, so that's part of the. Oh, yeah, really? The, wow. that's a big yeah. deal. Yeah. So, yeah, it's funny how these yeah investment ideas trickle out into the real world. So in terms of uh, strengths and weaknesses, I, I, we always like to be fair and, and pro- kind of look at both hands. Uh, we're not the one-handed economist. Uh, we are. We do have two hands. And so some of the some of the things we like strength-wise is they do have long-term relationships with some of these uh, governments and, and, and companies. I mean, up to, up to twenty years. With all the turmoil they went through, they didn't really lose a major client at all through all of that. We like the fact that they are kind of an advisor. So even even though it's a cyclical business, there's no doubt about that. When you're on the cost-saving side, you're probably one of the last guys to get fired right. on a project. So uh, we like that. And, and probably one of the most, most important things is at the old firm I was at when I was a director of research, we looked at a lot of the energy and construction companies, you know, um, Shaw, Jacobs, all these companies. And one of the big risks for these companies is, you know, they're on the other side of that, of the desk, right? And and one of the things that always seems to happen with these companies is at the end of projects, they have these huge write downs because of these dramatically over cost overruns, Uh right? Interesting. We used to follow a company called McDermott and, you know, I'm not going to just wish to disparage them, but, but, but their symbol is MDR and we used to call it murder oh, because when they would, uh, there was a chance when they would report their earnings that it would murder your portfolio. So again, no specific offense to them, but that kind of illustrates what happens in that business. And, and so they're, they're not exposed to that. So you don't have these projects that go on for three years that look tremendously profitable. And in the end, they realize no money on it. Uh-huh. Sure. Um, and probably the fi- final strength that we like is it is a pretty diverse revenue stream. For example, 42% of the revenue is from buildings. 43% of the revenue is transportation. Think of things like uh, 
monorails, uh, airports, they're involved in those kind of uh, expansion. Okay. Energy directly, you know, think refineries, that kind of thing, is only 4% of their business. And a lot of these big ENC companies, right, the biggest, the big problems they have are in these refineries and, and things of this sort that are very cyclical. Now, having said that, 50% of their business used to be in the Middle East. Now it's only 30, and we can talk a little bit later about uh, that. So, so even though it does have an energy component and there is something that's kind of big in terms of the Middle East, which is energy-oriented, so I'll give you an example. They are also part of the project manager on a company, or I mean on a project. It's called the King Salman Park Project in Saudi Arabia. It's a $23 billion project that basically they're building the largest, how, how should I put it? They're building like the largest city park in the world in the middle of the desert. You know, that's, that's not truly oil dependent, but if oil goes to 20 bucks, that's probably a project that gets downsized in scope. Um, <laughs> the second biggest in the world. <laughs> so I've seen some pictures of it. You know, the, it's, it's typically what you see there, you know, the islands, that, you know, like the islands that they build over there yeah, and all yeah. that stuff. Um. It's that, it's that the scale is is that you know times two. So so that's a plus and a minus, right? I mean, the long scale project. Uh, one of the things that's one of the things that's good about long scale projects in the Middle East is the longer the project goes, the more opportunity Hill has for additional scope of work. And so that's a plus. The downside is is a lot of the I don't want to call them vanity projects, but you know clearly they're that sort. Uh, the weaknesses, real simple. The weaknesses, they are relatively small still. They're only the eighth largest, about three or four hundred million dollars in revenue. The business is cyclical and it's pretty lumpy, too. Right. That's the other problem is twenty three billion dollar projects don't come along very often. And usually when a, a project is big, it's big for a reason. And then once you uh, once you finish it, I mean, you know, if you're building a you're not going to have to build a second park in Saudi Arabia. So. So some of the projects that are really large are, are really kind of one, one-offs. You know, there's not a lot of repeat business for that. And then I guess one other risk, if I can think of it, would be there is some receivable risk. Uh, they they had a sixty million dollar receivable back in 2011 go to zero when uh, Libya was put in disarray. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, I saw uh, some comments that just mentioned that on our. Yeah, so there's you know it, it can definitely you know we don't counted as anything. It's it's definitely a zero in our models, but on a $160 million market cap company, if you can get some of that back. And I've talked to the management. The management basically says it's not a it's not a um, solvency issue because uh, it's kind of a, you know, it's a division of the government for, or department of the government. So it's, it's not really a solvency issue in getting that money. It's just uh, there's no government, <laughs> which could you know, go on for hundreds of years. But yeah, I- that lumpiness, maybe that helps explain why, you know, again, looking at taking, looking at the financial statements from kind of a high level. It, and I think part of this is probably you're going to talk about a turnaround story, but it just operating margins look really narrow. Net margins look really narrow. And, and it's just kind of you, you say lumpy. It looks it doesn't this doesn't look like a consistently profitable business over the past 10 years or so, but no, it, it, you know, it really hasn't been. And and part of it is management, which is, is no longer there. Part of it is the lumpiness. I mean, inherently it's not a, 
you know, a double digit operating margin business. It, it's a, it is a lower, uh, lower margin business because it is basically, co- you know, if you think about the, the, the model in a very simple way, it's a bunch of consultants and accountants and engineers that when they're out on the job, they're getting paid X dollars times some gross margin, you know, some markup. Mm-hmm. And when they're not on a project, they're sitting at their office at home under SGNA. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so it's one of those businesses where the utilization rate, for lack of a better description, can go up and down. And that's where the problem is. Um, part of the problem with the lack of profitability was the previous, the founder and his son were the CEO and right. another officer. And, and they seem to be able to take kind of a inordinate amount of the profits in uh, compensation. So, so, you know, and, and we can talk, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that, but that, that was certainly yeah, a problem. Yeah. They're gone. New management has made a lot of promises that we can talk about in terms of what, what a run rate of SGNA should be going forward. And they're, they're so far living up to their, their terms. So there, there really was a lot of, I don't want to call it waste and fat, but you know, one reason why I was an attractive acquisition candidate is if you, you know, you, a lot of that SGNA can just be absorbed by whomever. Right. So, so 40% gross margins is pretty nice if you can just strip out a lot of the other costs. Right. Yeah. So let's get into some of this, uh, father, son duo. You, <laughs> you, I think you called it this, you called it four years of chaos and yes. distraction from which Hill is now emerging. So tell us a little bit about the chaos and distraction. My goodness. For a $160 million company, it's, it's had as much drama probably as GE has, uh, although Mr. Markopoulos has not called them an outright fraud yet. So starting, I'll just start, it goes way farther back than this, but we'll just start in 2015. DC Capital, private firm, offered $5.50 a share. DC Capital owns uh, Michael Baker, which is a, a, a company that's similar in scope. So it would have been a really nice strategic fit and wiped out a lot of that SGNA we were talking about. Plus, the father's son was still there. So some of those costs were embedded in there. That was only 0.6 times revenue. So clearly it was a low offer. For example, Michael Baker eventually got taken out twice the initial bid. Oh, wow. So we think that, you know, if you just kind of look at strategically how things played out, that was really a, a low ball bid and there was plenty of opportunity for them to make a higher bid. One of the activist investors, Bullock Dog Investors, who also runs a, a closed-end fund called the Special Opportunities Fund, and uh, Hill is actually, their stock is in that fund. They started a proxy battle because it was clear that the uh, board of directors was not going to vote for it. In fact, they didn't vote for it, and we'll talk about that in another section. They lost. So DC Capital eventually came back and said, okay, we'll pay you 475 which obviously no one was going to take. So... So in 2015, you were dealing with a proxy battle and an aggressive uh, takeover candidate. 2016 rolls around, Bulldog comes back with a proxy battle, said some very critical things about uh, the CEO, David Richter, including saying, quote, that he was making misleading and outright false statements in their proxy presentations. And, and we have a link to that in our, our report. Bulldog finally won, got three members on the board. Uh, one of the board members that got replaced was... David's father, Irvin. So you had, you know, kind of a, a sweet, and the, and the guys that are on the board now are almost all activists and all two to 10% shareholders with lots of relationships in the industry, whether it's with Jacobs or, or uh, Primoris or, you know, uh, MYG there's, or MYR, there's a bunch of 
relationships there. We talk about in the report. Uh, 2017, the company decided to sell. They had a business that was a uh, construction claims management business that didn't really fit with their business. They sold it for one times revenue. Again, remember, uh, DC was bidding two thirds revenue for the whole company. But in the process of going through that sale, they discovered some uh, accounting irregularities, which were really minor intercompany currency translation problems because of you know, they have a significant 60% of their business is international. That got David Richter thrown out as the CEO. The company, uh, the activists said you still have to sell the company. They did sell the claims business, which paid off a ton of debt, which was another problem the company had. You know, if you think about it, a $400, $500 million revenue company with $200 million in debt is probably not the best situation to be in when you're a low margin cyclical business. So they got that sold but they were unable to get their financial done in time. They had to restate at least three years. So August last year, they were delisted. Uh, they were kicked out. Uh, you know, they're not in the Russell 2000 anymore. So, I mean, the stock was 550 when they got delisted. So, I mean, there's a benchmark for where the stock could be now that, you know, the business is actually fundamentally better than it was when it was 550. A bunch of investors bought in thinking it was going to go in the S&P or in the Russell 2000. Didn't make it because the market cap at that point was too small. Bulldog actually sold at least half the position uh, probably for tax purposes because they still own it in their fund and they still say that you know they love the what the business is doing. And then, of course, you had oil prices collapse. They had an airport project in Oman that was a 20 in 2018 was $26 million all by itself that got completed. In 2015, I think it was, they had $73 million worth of uh, contracts canceled out of the backlog because of the collapse of oil prices. So, yeah, I think that there was a little bit of chaos for the last – I mean, that's just – it's incredible they're still around, right? I mean, it's amazing (laughs) that they didn't end up worse financially. So with all that, I think it's easy to imagine that uh, the market doesn't love the stock. In fact, it seems like the – Pricing reflects sure. a lack of love and sure. perhaps even worse. Do you think that there are going to have to be additional events or catalysts besides an increase in profitability or sort of improving financials to get the stock? Re-added? Yes. I, when, when you go through all of that and you're a small company, you definitely become a show me, right? Plus you've had, not only turnover at the board, you've had a turnover of the three of the top five guys in the proxy in terms of management. Uh, there's no doubt this is a show me name. So when when I look at that thing, like like to me, until the company shows maybe four quarters, right, of sustained improvement in gross profit dollars in, uh, you know, the backlog's up 12% year to date. They've announced a couple of wins since then. So you know, the company really needs to show that this three quarters of improvement, three quarters improvement that they've had is is not just all low hanging fruit, easy business that was, you know, put off because people didn't know what the heck was going on at the company. So yeah, all those things have to happen. But if you, one of the the things you learn with small companies is you got to really evaluate management, right? I mean, these are small companies that have narrow focuses of business and I've invested in enough companies where management tried to do a turnaround and they were clearly not tasked 
you know, their skill set was not what you would want for the task at hand and um, the, the companies failed. So, so you kind of have to benchmark the company by each quarter. And one, one thing that's kind of interesting is there's never more than three different people asking questions on the conference calls. This last one, there was one. So clearly a bunch of people have no interest in it whatsoever. And that's where the opportunity lies. Um, but they definitely have to have four or five quarters in a row of sustained improvement. Plus that they've had this goal. It was called profit in um, performance. I think PIP, uh, they were going to get to $120 million annualized run rate, 30 million a quarter. They were below that last quarter. There probably there's some noise in the numbers, but they'll be at, they're they've been at thirty for two quarters in a row, and there's they're guiding for to be at one twenty. So if they can keep their SGNA and other costs at one twenty, and you can grow your revenue by ten percent with forty percent gross margin flow through, then I think then I think people will start to say, oh, this is a real business. It is a turnaround. And then when you just start using you know, modest numbers, you get 40 to 50% increase in the price just on an operating business. And, you know, and eventually if, if DC capital comes back or Jacobs or, you know, someone like that says, wow, this is still a real business and they still have this great backlog of business. And, and even though it's certainly more profitable, it would certainly continue to fit where we're at. So, and then that, that would be, you know, two X, but you never invest in a company with primary thesis being a takeout, but it's certainly plausible. And it, like I said, it'd be two X where it is today for sure. Yeah. Where are we? You mentioned management a couple times. Where are we with management now? You know, the track record isn't great with maybe some inflated SGNA expenses and then, you know, some rejected takeovers and some governance related issues and the proxy battles. So where are we today with management? All right. Let's, Let's give you a little hint of where we were to show you why it's so much better now. When the Richters were in charge, their total compensation from 2007 to 2014 tripled to about $6 million. Okay. In 2015, David's compensation alone was 50% of net income. And his, you know, his father's was 20, right? So uh, they they got... Oh, well, it gets better. Each of them got two cars, a $100,000 vehicle allowance between them, a $22,000 country club expense. And uh, when David left the CEO position, he got $1.2 million for unused vacation time. Non-employee directors were making one hundred and seventy grand a year. So, yeah, like you said, nice job if you can get it, right? So, So that's one of those places where you actually have to read financial statements and proxies and boring things like that because that just doesn't show up anywhere. Right. And and so that's a, that's a tremendous, I mean, $6 million is a tremendous amount of money in a company that just made 1 million or whatever it was, 1.7 million in their last quarter, 8 million run rate. So they, they had an interim CEO that was appointed by one of the, I think it was by Bulldog. But the new CEO was appointed in October 2018. His name is Rolf Gawley. And he's been with the company for 25 years. Uh, he also was, he was the president before that, the COO before that. He spent 10 years on the international project management side of the business. Uh, when he started, there was like 250 employees. Now there's 2,800. So, you know, I like the fact that 
he has been here through everything, the good times, the bad times, and hopefully the good times, right? So he has hands-on experience with this company, all the relationships that he developed over the years with all these companies and all these governments that hire Hill. There's a comfort, build, there's a comfort factor for them, right? There's a, there's a coherence in that amount. The CFO, Todd Weintraub, he was hired in November 2018. What I liked about him was he has 30 years of experience, including he's worked for six publicly traded companies. A couple of them, one was in, uh, was in aviation, the other one's uh, Macquarie, which everybody knows, they're, they're renewable energy, he worked for Hawaii Gas. So he has both public company experience and accounting experience in companies that are involved in construction. And then finally, the, uh, the new vice president in the Middle East, the other guy was making a really nice salary as well. He left. And so basically his junior is now in charge. So again, it, so, the, so the management has a basic understanding of the company, a, a strong understanding of financials and the contacts. One thing that also makes it better for them is the CEO took a 15% reduction in salary. If you read the proxy, their compensation is tied to EBITDA growth increased sales, but also a reduction in days of sales outstanding. So they can't just go out and get a bunch of business that eventually doesn't materialize. You know, obviously it'd be nice to have some kind of ROA or ROE metric in there too, but they've agreed to a compensation package that is cheaper than the old one and actually has tangible goals in the areas we want to see, right? Increasing sales without paying attention to DSOs is a terrible compensation package and and they, Hopefully, also they're taking all their vacation time. <laughs> Not too much, but you know. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> I, I tell you, I guess I'm in the wrong business. Oh, they moved into uh, another thing. They moved into this uh, new building in uh, Philadelphia, downtown Philadelphia. It's a, a trophy property, and their uh, lease expenses went up like twenty percent. And they spent thirteen million dollars on improvements. Uh, this was. Now they're still there, but you know that was paid for under the old regime. That's always kind of, I guess you can get a lot out of that and your experience at your work. I just, as a guy who works from home, it's tough for me to picture using using money in that way. But that's neither here nor there. I work I work at home too, and I would love to spend thirteen million dollars on my house. Yeah, I guess when you think about it that way, a thirteen million dollar home office would be pretty. The second swimming pool would be. Exactly, because, you know, this is a stressful business. So, uh, you know, we need a place to relax in like a Zen garden, something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we can tap the equity markets after we get off. Well, we just need to grow minutes of use or, um, you know, things of that. So we don't want to show any profitability, God forbid. Otherwise, we will get a terrible valuation. (laughs) Speaking of not showing profitability, let's talk a little bit about the the Middle East revenue story and what's going on there. Just what's the Middle East side of the business. We touched on earlier. We have this kind of big vanity project uh, going on now, but what's, what's behind the Middle East revenue declines. What do investors need to know about that side of the business? It sounds like it's, it's shrunk already as a proportion of the total business, but what can you tell us about that? Yeah, it, it definitely shrunk, although it is starting to grow again. And, you know, that that's kind of the 
known unknown, right, to use a, a cliche, that part of what drives the business. So, so if you're dealing with governments like Saudi Arabia or Oman or, or uh, you know, non-Arab Emirates, you know, clearly oil revenue is driving their capital expenditures and their social projects, right? So when oil prices collapse in a short period of time, they have they you know it does impact them and they they can subsidize this for a while, but it, it, it you know revenue is lost, so that that is a part of it. But at the same time, you know these countries are trying to balance that with this social revolution that's going on, and right. uh, while we kind of call this a vanity project per se, I mean they are trying to move forward on social issues and things of that sort because I mean look what happened to Libya, right? So right. so there's this. There's always going to be this overhang. There's no doubt about it. About you know what is the true long-term sustainability of the governments in these countries and their spending? But it, it, it there's almost no way around it, right? I mean, it's the the chicken and the egg. You're gonna have it's a, it's a necessary evil. And and like I said, they had a 73 million dollar project fall off. They had or, or, or get canceled. They had a 23 million dollar project. A twenty-six million dollar project that came to a conclusion. You know, it's a beautiful airport, so it, it's just kind of a necessary evil. But if revenue hadn't already fallen fifty percent, I'd probably be a lot more worried than I am now, uh, because there's always going to be this base level of business that they're going to have to have in the Middle East. So you know, like uh, Mumbai uh, monorail is another thing they did. So so I don't want to pitch this as an infrastructure play per se, but you know, there is this underlying demand of things that they are involved in that should get supported regardless. It's, it's certainly easier to build a monorail before it is another refinery, right? Okay. So sticking with this, I have a sentence here from your article, Tim, that I'm, I'd like to quote to you yeah. and then we can talk about it. So the you write that, quote, for example, nearly two thirds of the decline in Middle East revenue year to date is due to a 33% decline in fixed price revenue parentheses, non-gross margin generating revenue, end quote. How did you determine that the revenue declines had no gross margins, no embedded markups? And and how does that affect the overall business? I think we keep sort of circling back to this idea of different quality of revenue and gross margin dollars. But what what's going on there with this this revenue that seems to be you know, booked basically at the same level as COGS, no right. gross margin. What's up right. with that? Uh, well, first, I, I don't apologize that hearing that out loud, it's one of the most terrible sentences I can't even imagine <laughs> being written. I, I'm a little bit confused by it. I had to I had to think about that for a while. So, mea culpa on that one. Well, when, when I was at David Tyson Associates, uh, basically we had an institutional independent research product called Behind the Numbers. And one of the things that we used to do there, which was kind of cutting edge because this is the early 2000s, was uh, what people now commonly call forensic accounting techniques, right? Uh, you're looking to uncover situations where investors are overestimating or overextrapolating recent trends because they're just looking at the gross numbers or the, or the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So we were trying to look behind the numbers. So in this case, I was trying to look behind the numbers in terms of you know, this giant revenue decline and see what's going on. 
like I mentioned, there's only one or two analysts on any call and they don't ask the toughest questions all the time either. So, you know, it, it seems like people are just looking at this on spreadsheets, right? So let's see if I can walk this through. So as I mentioned before, there's, there's two components of revenue. One is consulting fee revenue, CFR, and, and typically that's about 80% of total revenue. The rest is basically reimbursable expenses like subcontractor costs. Like they may hire a subcontractor to watch the subcontractor or maybe, I don't know this for a fact, but you know, it could be uh, uh, transportation costs are just passed through, right? That they're just paying, paying for the time for the, the person. So, so, you know, that revenue just yes. gets billed. It's just like turning in your expense account. Whatever it is, is whatever it is. So if you look year to date yes. at total revenue, let's see if I get this right. At total revenue, the Mideast is at $54 million for six months versus $75 million last year. Big drop off. The CFR revenue uh, also dropped off pretty good, 68 to 48, right? So that was terrible. But if you look at the gross profit, going back to our point at the beginning, if you look at gross profit dollars, they only declined from 20 million to 18 million. Okay, so that's only a 12% decline. So basically, you know, 20 million dollars of revenue went away, and only 10% and only 10% of gross profit dollars went away. So as I mentioned earlier, 40% gross margins are kind of typical, right? So very low gross margin business has been burned off over the year. Otherwise, you'd see gross profit dollars decline commensurately. And now another way to look at it is in Q2. Right, in proportion. CFR revenue only dropped 9 million bucks or about 27 million year over year. But gross profit, and the company does a great amount of disclosure. They, it's, it's fantastic. I give them you know, high marks for the amount of detail that they provide in terms of segment analysis, gross profit dollars, gross profit margins at each segment, whether it's U.S. or Africa or the Middle East. Phenomenal. You know, I applaud them for that. Well, gross profits only dropped $1.2 million. Again, about 12% versus 40% gross margin. So... Again, when people are looking at year-over-year, you know, look at the headlines that you always see on Seeking Alpha and ThinViz and every place else. Revenue declines, blah, blah, blah. You know, they may have beat revenue by a million dollars, but then you go, wow, it declined by 30. That's not that good. But when you can look at the numbers, you can see that the gross profit dollars are an, an implied back of the envelope gross profit margins are higher than what was burned off, plus the company actually reported a million and a half dollars in net income, its first profitable quarter since mid-2016, and it had $7.5 million in free cash flow in the quarter. Uh, now, some of that's working capital, but none of those numbers would be going in that direction if profitability was if, you know, commensurate with the, the revenue that went away. So... Those things all kind of flip together to show me that it that it is going in the right direction. But again, yeah. how many people are going to invest in a company where that's happened for just one quarter in the last four years, right? They have to show some sustainability. Now, one of the things that I didn't mention in my report that also is interesting is I, I, well, I, I put in my report, I calculate 
what percentage of the backlog gets realized over the next 12 months? They tell you, they tell you the dollar amount, right? They tell you that X number of millions of dollars should be realized over the next 12 months. Well, one of the things that I noticed was uh, that percentage was going down slightly. Uh, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it was going down. And that concerned me a little, right? That should be kind of a stable number. Well, I asked management about that, and they said that because the Middle East backlog is starting to increase as a percentage of the total, so again, we're talking about mix, and you have projects like the $23 billion park, you know, those are longer in uh, duration and, and bigger in scope. And for a company like Hill, putting those in the backlog are actually beneficial from the standpoint of the longer the contract is out there and the more scope there is, the more opportunity there is for extra work, right? So it's actually something that I thought was kind of a negative to start with, but it turns out I would rather see that for now. And the answer they gave was certainly a reasonable explanation from my experience. Does that make sense? You know, the, the, actually, the Middle East backlog is actually as high as it's been in two years. So, again, okay. it's coming down on an absolute yeah. basis as some of those long-term projects rolled off. But in the backlog, it's higher than it's been in two years. And that's not showing up anywhere. Well, let's, let's sort of circle back then as we head towards the wrap-up. That, that question sort of looms large in my mind. The years of difficulty, management, you mentioned that people have been promoted from within the company. The there's a a sort of you've outlined a case of sort of gross margin dollars improving, the revenue mix tilting in a more favorable direction, SGNA costs coming back more into line. It looks like the balance is shifting a little bit in favor of the shareholders in favor of the activists, but how can we really be sure that we have a, we have a different situation now? What, what evidence can you point to or what can you point to in terms of going forward for investors to look out for? Management seems like such a key piece of the story. How, how do you sort of assess that? element from where we stand today. I thought investors were supposed to embrace uncertainty. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, isn't that why why in the long run growth stocks don't outperform value or hopefully, you know, don't, I mean, they have been for a long time now, but you know, isn't that the premise, right? That, that uh, if value stocks have tended to work because expectations are low and they just have to stumble over that bar to get a, better multiple and that a lot of expectations are embedded in high PE stocks. But more seriously, to to answer your question, one, this is a tough one. I mean, this is a tough one, but you know, it's kind of like playing poker, right? You, you have a certain amount of information that's known and you have a, a certain amount of information. I know what my cards are. I don't know what yours are. I know what the cards are on the table. I know how you've bet and people have bet, but I, I really don't know what cards you have. Right. So I have, I have to make, my bets based on uh, Duke's book. What's uh, Andy Duke's book? Thinking you know, in bets or something like that. Yeah, thinking in bets, and it talks about how do you make bets with partial information, 
it's a it's a phenomenal book. I, I, Daniel I, also really likes it. Yeah, it's it's a great book, and it and it's it's taken it from a you know it's almost like applied behavior theory versus some of the stuff maybe Danny Kahneman and some of those guys and Thaler do right. She's, she's kind of like doing applied <laughs> applied behavioral finance. So one we have. We have to embrace the uncertainty that it is not proven. And and frankly, if it was so obvious, the stock would be four bucks probably, right? But uh-huh. but yeah. here's a couple of things. In 2015, the company had a stated goal of reducing SGNA costs by $25 million. Okay. And this is on a run rate that was like 180 million. All right. SGNA was 170 to 180 million dollars. It's 120 now. All right, much lower hurdle revenue-wise to get over to make it profitable. Uh, the analysts on one of the calls, David Richter, uh, and I don't know him personally, and I, you know, I don't know. I, he could be a great guy. I'm not trying to slight him. I'm just kind of reporting the facts that uh, as I know them. Uh, one of the analysts uh, he had touted that they had already generated 21 million dollars in savings out of the 25 million. Well, SG&A costs year over year were up, and the analysts just, you know, I don't understand where the show me the numbers. So, right. So, uh, you know, that's what they had before. Like I said, the SGNA runway was $170 million. It's $120 million now. I mean, so that's $50 million in SGNA that's gone. You know, if you want to gross up 4% gross margins, what kind of revenue? You know, that's a couple hundred million dollars worth of revenue, right? That they don't need to achieve the same profitability that they might have had in the past, right? So, you know, give people go, go the other way up the income statement. I'm a lot. I'm a lot more confident that they can at, at 400, 320, or a, let's say 350 to 400 million dollar run rate. Think about that: 300 or 400 million dollar run rate in CFR revenue only on 120 million in SGA versus 170 million in SGA at a 40 percent gross margin. I mean, you can see right there what what it could be. And they're not that you know they're not that far away already. They're like 75 million run rate a quarter. So the company said we're going to reduce our costs by 25 million dollars. They did. Now, part of that was easy because they were spending $20 million bucks or $15 million bucks on accounts, right, to uh, get everything stated. So all I can judge them on is, you know, it's small sample size. But so far, what they said they're going to do, they're going to do. The backlog is, is growing, which tells me that the business model is still viable. So, you know, I may not be going all in on the river, but – you know, I feel comfortable maybe making a, a, a three bet on the river. You know, because like, what's the downside? The, the, the what you know what what's the downside? The stock traded at a low of two fifty, I guess. And uh, and Cora, one of the nine, he's a nine percent holder. That firm's a nine percent. You know, they they bought fifty to seventy five thousand shares between two fifty and two eighty five, including they filed two SEC form fours since I wrote the report. So you know, what's the downside? Two fifty. 220. I mean, it's still, it's, it's certainly going to be more profitable now than it was, uh, you know, and the upside is four to $6. It seems like an asymmetrically rewarding bet for something that does have a lot of uncertainty. Now people can write comments and say, I'm an idiot. And that's, you know, why there's a two-sided market and maybe they're right. Well, okay. So, but that's, I mean, it's fair. And uh, <laughs> it's acknowledging uncertainty is, I think, uh, something that we try and do a lot when we talk about these ideas. So I think that that's, it's a fair point. And at some point you are taking a risk. So I get it. 
Yeah. I mean, one of the things I've, I've been in the business since 83. So one of the things that I wish I would have learned earlier in my career was, you know, sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. Right. Because I think people will, and, and if people go back and read some of our articles, you know, I wrote about the illusion of control. And, and I think that there is, I'm not the only one that's written that, but I think that's true that, you know, people think that the more knowledge they have, I mean, there's those studies that show that after a point, more information doesn't make better decisions. So you have to kind of trust your sense. You know, I don't want to say that this is just your guesswork, but uh, I've seen a few companies, business models in 39 years or 36 years, and you start to recognize traits of companies and managements that you can, uh, bet's probably the wrong word, but you know, they get a little bit more of a benefit of the doubt than some of these other guys. That's why I think in the small cap space, some of the most successful investors on Seeking Alpha and other places are these guys that do read the proxies, right? And they look at the history of the CEO. And, you know, I mean, look at some of the frauds that have, that have been exposed on Seeking Alpha or, or just companies that have failed. And they're like, wow, the guy running the company's failed at three other companies, right? So, um, you know, or had, the company has a history of uh, overstating revenue or whatever. So, you have, to, you have to get down to the management, and then you have to see that if the words match the deeds. So far, the words are matching the deeds. Okay. Tim Heitman of Investing 501, thank you very much. Great conversation. Mike, I appreciate it. Thank okay. you. And for listeners, please remember to leave us a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever you want to call it. Uh, we put out a call for some additional ratings and you helped bring up bring up our podcast rating and we got a lot more so thank you those of you who helped our cause and those of you that haven't here's another reminder the guy with the iPads arrives he was tripping well with Jim Fest he was half dead in dynamite with a needle marked arms like the front man of some grunge band a big straw hat and a liquid orange suntan he cooled himself off with a Japanese hand fan motion for silence, and then he began, he said,